Welcome, everybody, to episode 737 of First Class Fatherhood. I'm happy and honored, as always, to be here with you guys. Thank you for tuning in. I got a terrific guest for you guys today. Bob Kilpatrick joins me on the podcast today. Bob Kilpatrick is a singer, songwriter, broadcaster, author. He does it all. He has been in the music business for decades, and he's been married even longer than that. Uh, Bob Kilpatrick is well-known for his hit song, In My Life, Lord Be Glorified. He has traveled the world uh, with his music. Uh, but this is a guy that has been married a lot longer than I've been alive. So I stand, and he's been a dad a lot longer than I've been alive too. So I stand a lot to learn from Bob Kilpatrick, as we all do. Uh, we all try to learn from one another. Uh, he is a man of faith, obviously a man of family. He's a first-class father all the way. So I'm excited to have him on the podcast today. I got to give a hat tip to Zorro, the drummer, who uh, hooked me up with Bob for this interview. I'm glad that he did. It's an honor to have him on the podcast today. Bob Kilpatrick will be here with me in just a few minutes. So please stick around for the interview. And if you guys want to check out any of the other interviews that I've done with musicians or singers, please go through the long list of uh, uh, singers and songwriters that have joined me here on the podcast, uh, Backstreet Boys, Sync, Boys to Men, uh, just a few of the boy bands that have been on the podcast, uh, dads from those groups, uh, so many solo singers, uh, Donny Osmond. So there's been a lot of singers and songwriters that have joined me here on the podcast. I encourage you to go through the archives and check them all out. And if you are going to a concert, or you're going to go to, or you want to get it as a gift for somebody, buy your tickets, your concert tickets at SeatGeek.com or use the SeatGeek app and use the promo code FIRSTCLASS, that's one word, FIRSTCLASS, and save $20 on your tickets. All right, so let's do this. As always, please let me spread the word about today's podcast every father in your neighborhood or in your contact list. Let them know about the show that this year is celebrating fatherhood and family life, and you guys know it every day is Father's Day right here on the podcast. And here comes my interview straight up with Bob Kilpatrick on First Class Fatherhood. First Class Fatherhood. That is where Alec Lace comes in with his popular podcast. And one of the most interesting was on a podcast. Alec Lace interviews high-profile fathers from actors to NFL players with a vision to change the narrative of fatherhood and family life. All right, joining me now, First Class Father, Bob Kilpatrick. Welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Thank you very much, Alec. Good to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. Let's start it like this. How many kids do you have? How old are they? <laughs> well, let's see. I have four sons and one daughter. She was the last. So we, she's kind of the caboose of the train. And I, I really, honestly, I was very happy when I saw she was different than what had come before. <laughs> because, I'll tell you, you, you you're, you're where I would have been because we had three boys and then got the girl. But if we didn't get the girl, we would have had the four boys and we'd be right where you are trying that fifth time to get the girl. So we got her on four. We got one ahead of you. Oh, man. We thought, okay, four boys, we got a band. If we have five boys, now we have a basketball team. Are we? Will we be able to live through the abuse that people will give <laughs> us? You know, and so, uh, man, I seriously, I cried for two days uh, after my daughter was born. I just was so happy to have a girl, and she's spoiled. But all my kids are spoiled with both love and discipline. I think love without discipline is no love at all. So we spoiled them all. The oldest, my oldest son, I'm 71. My oldest son's 51. Next one is 40 eight next one is 46 next one is 43 and my daughter is 41 Will Great we kids 40? yet 22 Woo, man all, all homegrown we didn't import any of them they're, <laughs> yeah, they're all yeah, your kids are slightly older than mine i got three teenage boys and a uh a nine-year-old girl so you're you're uh, i definitely stand to learn something here from you if you could bob please take a second to hit the listeners with a little bit about your background what you do 
Well, first off, uh, I was married at 19. My wife and I were both Jesus people uh, during the 70s. You know, in 1970, we uh, we fell in love and just felt like this is it for us. And we were married in 71. Uh, this is one of those marriages that shouldn't have worked, but it, you know, cause it's a teenage marriage and all that, but it did. And we're still here 51 years later. So, uh, almost, uh, well, 52 years later, almost 53. And, um, my son, my oldest son's a writer. My second son's a designer. Third son is a business guy. Fourth son is a worship pastor and an executive pastor at a church here in California. My daughter's married to a rocket scientist <laughs> and, uh, and then, uh, let's see, I was raised uh, in the Air Force. My dad was a Southern Baptist chaplain in the Air Force. That's primarily where I, I uh, what I claim. And I lived in Japan for four years as a kid, really enjoyed it. Lived in Turkey as a teenager. Um, but then uh, I came back to America. We moved to California and um, the Jesus movement was just kind of, you know, popping up at the moment. And so I thought this is very cool. I, I kind of liked it. And so I felt uh, I was uh, called into the ministry. And that's what I've been doing ever since I was 17 years old. And uh, my wife joined me and we just we just kept barreling ahead. I was uh, I was on staff at a couple of churches as a youth pastor and a music pastor. And then just felt like I really want to just write songs and sing them to people. And they they were very supportive. My pastor was very supportive of that, said, yeah, let's do that. We'll, we'll help you do it. And so um, that's what I began doing. And I, I wrote a song that just sort of went everywhere in my life. Lord be glorified, just went all around the world. And, and honestly had, I had nothing to do with it because I didn't know about the music business. I didn't know anything. I was very naive. I just barely played guitar <laughs> enough to get myself to the next story. I would tell, um, but the song just it really opened up doors for me all over the world. And so everywhere I go, I've been to China 12 times. I've been to Ukraine twice in the last year. Uh, I've been everywhere. And we just were in Cambodia last month. Um, and everywhere we go, people already know this song. They have, So they they already have welcomed me into their heart. And that's just a, a just a wonderful gift. And so I started writing. I started producing albums for other people, too. I've made it made a, a recording studio in my house and uh, we had people like Phil Keggy and Randy Stonehill and lots of other folks uh, worked with Noel Paul Stuckey from Peter Paul and Mary and who else the love song and Sarah Groves and, and a lot of folks like that. And then I started writing books uh, just cause I could. <laughs> uh, I have five books out now and I don't know. I'm just, I'm an adventurer. I just really want to, I want to do everything is, that there's possible to do. I got a master's degree in biblical studies just because I thought I need to sit under somebody else's discipline. And I need to, I, I've been learning my on my own by reading books, but uh, I really need to have somebody else tell me what to do in my uh, intellectual studies, you know? And so I, I did that, but my main thing is I just, I just want to, uh, I just want to do everything there is to do and, you know, climb up to the next ledge on the mountain, so to speak. Well, you, you've had a tremendously successful career, and it's amazing how many how many lives you've touched and how many people have been affected by your songwriting and your singing. So, uh, it, but take me back then. You said I think you said your oldest is fifty one. Take me back yeah. five decades here. Then how, you said you got married at nineteen. How old were you when you became a dad, and how did that experience change your perspective on life? I was twenty. So nineteen first. You know, we got married at nineteen. 
November 13th, 1971. And on November 22nd, 1972, a year and nine days after we were married, our oldest son was born. And, uh, and by the way, we had a, we had one of those, uh, righteous relationships. You know, we kept ourselves for marriage and very, very thankful about it every day since then, even to today. And so, um, yeah, Joel changed our lives because, uh, I think women, uh, when they have a child, the, the child becomes really the center of their lives as it should. Um, but that affects the husband, you know, affects the wife and their relationship. And so, uh, it, it just profoundly changed our lives at, when he was born. But I think we were young enough that we, we hadn't learned habits of our own as adults. Uh, we, we learned our habits together as adults, my wife and I. And so, uh, we sort of like roots of a tree. We just sort of, you know, bound our roots together and, um, and, uh, we've had a great time. It's just been, it's been really wonderful. You know, it's interesting too, Bob, uh, because so many people now, it, it kind of look down upon people that if you're going to get married at 19 or married at 20, they feel like you should go and experience the world and do all the, make all these uh, crazy lifestyle choices before you actually realize you made mistakes and then settle down. I was a little bit ahead of, uh, behind you. We got married at 24, started having kids at 25. Uh, so, which is a little young on today's scale because most are starting in their early 30s having kids now or late 20s, early 30s. Uh, but what, you know, what is your advice there to people who are, you know, or what do you say to people that are saying, yo, getting married too young is a mistake. You should go to go to chase all these material things first. Well, I think anyone who wants to get married at any age, that's fine, whatever choice they want to make. But I do not regret, not at all, the decision to have got married at 19. And uh, if it's right, I mean, both of our sets of parents agreed with us that this was the right choice. It wasn't like we were doing this in a vacuum. Everybody said, this is a good relationship. And I think this is, this is blessed by God. And so we did it. And um, I think if, if you, you look, what are you going to, what are you going to experience before you get married that will help your marriage? Are you going to, uh, you're going to have sex? Are you going to, you know, be hanging around doing a lot of dating? Are you going to live alone and develop your own habits alone so that when someone comes into your life, now all of a sudden you have to change everything you do? And so does she. I mean, there's a lot about it that's just kind of disruptive. Right, right now, I, the cult, I was going to say right now, the culture, Bob, especially with the young people in college right now is, uh, this hookup culture and you have a uh, body count, you have girls that are coming out with body counts, meaning sexual partners, you know, 20, 30, 40 sexual partners throughout their college experience. And it's like, for me, um, I don't think they realize the the damage that that's doing to them down the line. When you meet a guy that's going to find out that you've been with 30, 40, 50 people before him. Uh, I think that, I think the way that it's being embraced and it's being promoted, especially through social media and in our, in our own culture, I, I think is a main problem with, with some of the rot that we're seeing right now in society and the problems we're seeing with marriages being able to last. Oh, I, I totally agree with you. I totally agree. I've had one sexual partner in my life and uh, that's my wife and that's it. That's uh, I told somebody I'm ready to commit now. <laughs> <laughs> to this relationship. But I, uh, you know, I just think it's very important because you don't have any regrets. Why would you set yourself up for regret? You don't have to, uh, 
you don't have the fears of things that have happened to you in the past sexually with a sexual partner that was abusive or something. You don't have those fears in front of you when dealing with your husband or wife. It's just, why do that to yourself? You know, it's like, it's like, it's like putting a painkiller, Novocaine, anesthetic on your arm and cutting yourself. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt at all, but eventually it's going to hurt. And yeah, yeah. Uh, so many things that we do now as, as youth, as young people, we, we will very much regret later on in life. And this is why the messaging needs to get to the youth, especially in this country. We definitely need a, uh, a revival of faith in this country, a revival of the family, uh, because those two things are really hurting. I mean, we, we have tried to solve all these things with money. We've tried to solve them with uh, political ideologies. But unless we can have a, a revival of faith and a revival of the family and get our families together and get God back in our society, I don't think you're changing anything, no matter what you do. I, I think you're exactly right. I just put a post on uh, whatever it's called, X, Twitter, you know, that um, that d- democracy without God is uh, is mob rule and uh, and demo- excuse me, uh, enterprise or capitalism without God is um, greed. And if both of those God mitigates the idea that we are accountable to our creator mitigates any of the uh, bad things that we would do among our society. If we like, if you don't believe that there is a God and that you will be accountable for something that you do, then you could take money and not care about it. You can steal people's money and not care about it. You can, you know, do a Bernie Madoff thing. Um, the same thing with, uh, with democracy, democracy becomes mob rule. We saw it in the French revolution. It becomes mob rule when you take God out of it. They specifically removed God. They tore down all of the uh, all of the parish churches all across uh, France, and they killed hundreds of priests. And they turned it from a seven day work week to a ten day work week, precisely specifically to reject the idea of seven days that God had said, this is the seventh day of rest and you should do this. And all those things were tragic. They were horrific for the people. And it, it just belies what we just said, that the uh, that that democracy without God is mob rule. And we're seeing that in America. It's, it's yeah. terrible. Yeah, there, there's no doubt about that. And then let me bring it back into you as a father here. Obviously, uh, you, you've been into, you've been doing this with your faith at an early age. You, you grew up in it. Now you said, I believe one of your sons, a pastor himself, uh, so what were what were the top values and how much of a, a factor did faith play? I would imagine a big one. But what was your the importance of you instilling uh, faith and what were the values that you hope to instill in the kids all growing up? Well, very important. Uh, I mean, you have to believe in something. Everybody believes in something. Why not believe in the true God? <laughs> that's what that was mine. Um, also, I. I think the one of the strengths that that Cindy and I had as a couple as parents is that we uh we weren't faking it. There are some people I know in church, pastors, Christian authors or singers or whatever who uh they have a good public face but it's not so good in private. And um I guess I guess if I could say I did one thing right it was I, I didn't fake it for my kids. Uh, never did. They knew everything, you know, but I still believed. And so they still believe my, all of my kids are involved in ministry. It's just, just amazing. And then the, the grandkids, my oldest grandson is a missionary to China 
and uh, speaks Mandarin fluently and just, you know, it's just, uh, it's a remarkable thing. I, I feel blessed because of it. I can't honestly, I, my people would tell us, Cindy and I, you should write a book about parenting. <laughs> and then my five kids grow up and they're all parenting differently than we did. And I go, yeah, I got nothing to say. I got nothing to say. So all the, I guess that if I were to give advice, I would say, don't fake it. Don't be a one person at home and one person in public. And then the second one, uh, you got to love them. I mean, you, they're not, they're not, for me, making Christian music and writing books and doing whatever I did, that was job number two. Job number one was to be an example to my sons. I told my wife, I'm not being faithful to you only because I feel like I should be faithful, but I have four sons looking at me and they're, they're looking at, and they're going to say, oh, this is how a righteous Christian man acts. He leaves his wife for another woman. He fools around on the side. I said, I can't do that. I can't give them that example. I'm going to live a holy life for them. And, and it's worked, you know, it's the other thing I, I guess I would say is always say yes. As a dad, you know, people say no, because it'll inconvenience them, you know, dad, can I do this? No, I don't want to get up out of my easy chair. I don't want to do anything to, you know, no, you can't do it because I don't want the, the Bible calls Jesus, the divine. Yes. And I was just intrigued by that description of him. And I thought, wow, I want to be that guy. I want to say yes, unless I absolutely positively have to say no. So dad, can I jump off the roof? Well, not yet, because we have to figure out a way for you to do it safely and live. But if you can do that, then you can jump off the roof. Say yes to everything. So the kids knew that when I said no, I, I really meant it. It was it was for a good reason. It wasn't just uh, I don't want to get up and help you. Yeah. I, I love that, Bob. And then also, too, um, I know you said you can't have the dis discipline without love. Uh, so you say your kids' parenting styles are a lot different. What was your discipline style with the kids growing up? And was that different than the discipline style you grew up with yourself? Well, my father was an orphan and uh, he was not he was he was disciplined by women. And so it was very difficult for him to discipline. But he was a great man, just a wonderful guy. So when I had children, uh, I didn't want to be mean to them. I didn't want to beat anybody up. Uh, but I didn't want them to feel as though they could get away with stuff uh, and, and no consequences. But I, didn't, I also didn't want to discipline them for being stupid. I wanted to discipline them for being rebellious, right? Because sometimes we do stupid stuff. It's like one time one of our sons burned his clothes in the fireplace we had a big house with a bunch of fireplaces and he burned his clothes in his fireplace. And, and I come down to the room is full of black smoke. I go, what are you doing? You know, he goes, well, I just wanted to see what would happen. Well, you can't really discipline him for being stupid. And especially if you never told him, Hey, don't burn your clothes in the fireplace. <laughs> so disobedience gets discipline. That's, that was our sort of our, our idea. Disobedience gets discipline. Rebellion gets discipline. When the boys would talk back to my wife, they'd sass her. There would, there would be an opportunity sometimes for me. I would be there and they didn't know it. And they start back talking. So I would just lay them down on the carpet, you know, and uh, my knee on their chest and just say, you know, don't ever talk to her like that again. I loved her before I loved you. And so uh, if you talk like that to her again, 
you're getting out and getting your own place, but it's not going to happen here. So those, that's some of the stuff I was a little bit tougher. You know, people let, let their kids get away with all kinds of stuff. And I just, I wasn't that guy. I just go, no, you're not the most important person in this family. You don't call the shots. I call the shots. Your mom calls the shots. That's it. And then the, uh, I guess, I don't know. There's, there's a, there's a whole bunch of little things, you know, attached to these little things you do. I, uh, traveled a lot when the kids were smaller and I always let them know I'm traveling because I'm committed to something larger than you. I'm, I'm not, you are not the center of my world, even though you'd like to believe you are, I love you. I, I will give my life for you, but you are not the center of my world. One of these days you're going to grow up. You're going to be your own man or woman. You're going to live with the consequences of your choices yourself. I'm trying to help you not to be an, an idiot. I'm trying to get people to thank me for, for bringing you into the world rather than, you know, sorry, Bob, bad one there, you know? <laughs> so I'd like people to say, Bobby did a great job, but um, you are not the most important thing in my life. God is the most important thing in my life. And I'm living for something else. And then your mom is before you and then you, so sorry about that. <clears throat> <laughs> well, I, I I will say, Bob, too, that, uh, you know, we do have this culture, too, that believes that disciplining children, spanking children or being hard on children is some type of child abuse. And so there's obviously a major, major difference between beating a child and spanking a child. And it's crazy that we even have to stipulate that or say that. But there is this belief that and it's scared parents away from disciplining their own children. And when they You're don't right. have that discipline portion, especially when the father is not in the home. And I harp on that all the time. But when there is no male role model in the house, positive male figure, and there's not that discipline portion and the mother is afraid to spank the child or discipline the child and doesn't have that male back uh, reinforcement. Uh, this is the reason why we're seeing so much chaos, uh, I think, throughout the country here. I think you're right, guys. Dads, men have power. Like just yesterday, my daughter was saying that she was having trouble with one of her one of her kids and, you know, just constant, constant, always having to. And then dad comes home, my son-in-law, Eric, and uh, he goes, go to your room. Boom. Immediate obedience, you know, because dads have power. They have authority. And the kids and when when the dad's not there, I think people think that you're being kinder by not spanking or not disciplining or whatever else, but I actually think it leads to chaos and violence. And because you, you mentioned the chaos and the chaos leads to violence. And I've seen so many children that are just violent to their parents and their parents are letting them get away with it because they think this is the kind thing to do. I think the kind, look, I, I never, ever hit my kids. I never once hit them. Not, not like this. I never slapped them. I never did anything like that. I spanked them. And I, and I, I just stuck with that, but not every time, you know, you don't need to spank them all the time. You just, you need to remind them that who's in charge of what they need. And I, I would, I would always tell them, I'm only doing this because I love you. I want you to know there are consequences to your actions. And that if you keep doing this, it's going to hurt you. And if you go into life as an adult and you don't learn from me, other people in your life will teach you these lessons and it's going to hurt even worse. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. And there also is, you know, as you said, the different discipline styles for different kids. Uh, you know, I have a certain son that you could spank them all day long and it's really not going to make a difference. The other ones where you could threaten to spank them and they'll straighten right out. So each kid right. receives that 
uh, a little bit differently. Uh, but but it's true. And it does lead to uh, violence. And we are seeing and I, I always say that, you know, the number one character that's filling up the prison system in this country is a young man who grew up without a father in the household. And so I've interviewed inmates oh, right. and wardens. And it's just that that pattern seems to be the, the main issue that we're having in our country here. Uh, and it's so vitally important. And seeing the, even if it's not the, the father, the biological father, it's having that male role model that's in their life that they can look up to, that they see behaving like you said, uh, they see the way I behave. They see that I'm loyal. They see that I'm uh, respectful and they have that to look up to without that. We, we have so few um, positive male role models in our society for kids that are growing up without that father and they find it in the street. And that's what's really that's what's leading them right down to prison. You are so right. People, men, young men want to be warriors. They want to be warriors. They want to protect the women and children. They want to fight. They want to, you know, stand for something. That's why all the the, the movies uh, that appeal to young men. I mean, come on, they, they want to be warriors. Give them away. Teach them to be a warrior with a conscience. So you're a warrior who also is tender to the women and to the children. You take care of people, but you all you will not back down from defending them to the death. That's that's what men want to do. But they need to be taught that tender, the tenderness and the toughness together. You know. Yeah, we have, and even like you say, through movies and stuff like that, we we have diminished the male role model in in, in oh. the film industry. We've attacked masculinity, and so uh, you, you know, we used to grow up on the movies where uh, the, the main guy was 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 loyal to the woman. He had the beautiful woman. He knocked out the bad guy, saved the woman, and rode off into the sunset. Like those were the movies we all craved. Like, and that was those heroic type of characters that we looked up to, and we're missing that now. Especially, like I said, you know, I was just. Uh, at the Super Bowl a couple of weeks ago, interviewing the dads that were playing in the game. And I made it a point to focus on faith this time around. And I think it's important that we see so many guys now in, coming into the NFL, young guys uh, that are not afraid to profess their faith and, and they are very bold in their faith. And I think it's important because uh, so many young kids uh, so many young boys, young men look up to these athletes, these NFL people as if they're gods, like they look up to them so much. So they're what they do, how they behave. It matters. It has an impact on these kids. And so when you have young guys coming in that are talented, but are not afraid to give glory to God, boy, right. I, I really think that makes an impact on the young uh, culture in America. Oh, yeah. And someone was pointing out to me the other day, said, think about the TV shows popular in America and show, tell me one where the man, the adult male in the show, the father, was not an idiot. And I I started thinking about it. I go, well, I think Tim Allen, Home Improvement, I think that's about it. Every, every other guy was an idiot uh, on TV. In the movies, every other guy's around her. He's sleeping with every woman that comes into his life, and then he kills people without impunity. There's no consequence. In the movies, you kill a guy, he goes falling off somewhere. Nobody cares to investigate. There's no consequence to your actions. And guys come up street culture and they're thinking, this is what I do, you know? And they're, they're thinking it's going to be like the movies. The, the the dead body just sort of disappears. It just yeah. It's part of the script. Or, or like a video game in a sense. Like, you it's know, like, it's just. Oh, man, Call of Duty. Gosh, I sat with a guy. I was, he, was, he was playing that. And I thought, I'll never play this game. It's too violent and it get it, it makes you want to do that. It's just yeah. terrible. Yeah, there, 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 there's no doubt about it. So 
All right. So obviously uh, you, you've got a, a bunch of grandkids over there to keep you guys busy. But what, what are you working on right now, Bob? What kind of projects? You've had a lot of success in the music industry. Are you working on anything new? Well, what's coming up? What can we look for? Any more books? I know you got a, almost a half a dozen books out there. Uh, what oh, are you yeah. working on now? What's coming up? Well, um, I've been going to Ukraine right after the war started. Uh, I asked a Ukrainian friend, how can we help? And uh, he said they really need food mostly, and it's a bread culture. So we bought a bakery in Kiev, and uh, and started you know baking bread. In a, it's it's housed in a rehab, rehabilitation center for men struggling with drugs and alcohol. And uh, we've given away hundreds of thousands of loaves of bread, lots of meals, probably hundred thousand meals. And then I flew over there twice just to see if our money was being spent well, you know, because we're raising money to do this and help. We want to make sure it's not like, uh, hey, I got a new Mercedes, you know, and uh, they were they're doing a great job. Church in Kiev, another one in Poltava. And they're 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 uh, buying they're giving wood stoves, actually building wood stoves and giving them delivering them to people in the war zone so that they can have a place to keep warm and a place to cook which they don't have. They don't have any, any electricity or gas. So I've been there twice and been out to the to uh, the front lines and went through a missile attack and all that kind of stuff, you know, and uh, going back in May. And that's really got my heart. It's not a governmental program. We don't use any government money. Don't take any government money. It's all people to people. And especially it's the church in America helping the church in Ukraine because the church there in Ukraine is really the most believable uh organization that has integrity that will do the work without siphoning off the funds to buy their whatever you know cars summer houses and so they're really doing the work and uh and lots of volunteers we've uh, we just built a couple of houses for some widows right near the front lines about eight miles ten miles from bakhmut uh where the war is raging at the moment and it's not to t- you know i tell people there are no good dogs in this fight there's the Ukrainians, the Russians, the Americans, they're no, everything's corrupted. They're all corrupted. Everybody's just making a load off of all this money that we're giving to them. This is from people to people. And so it's not governmental. We're not get, working. I do know, you know, people in government over there, but it's not, we don't work with them. They're, we know them, you know, other ways. Uh, so that's, that's really got my heart at the moment. I just, where can the people here that are listening that would want to help or contribute? Where would they go? You got a website, you got a link or something right now we're, we're building the website. They can go to bobkilpatrick.com and, uh, it's all nonprofit. It's all tax exempt. So they can get a, they can get a deduction for it, but yeah, they can help out. We've, we've already spent a lot, well, just a lot of money and we're hoping to, to raise at least a million to go, you know, when I go in May to help them out. Uh, but they bobkilpatrick.com they can find my address there they can make use electronic means to to contribute then that would be wonderful thanks alec i didn't think we'd be talking about this but that's wonderful yeah i'll, I'll definitely i'll drop the link down below to the description of the podcast so if listeners are interested it's something they want to donate to they can make that choice uh last thing i want to hit you with here bob i love to ask all the dads i get on the podcast what type of advice do you have for that brand new dad or that about to be father who's out there listening man love your wife Love your wife. Love your wife. When your kids are growing up from the time that they're born until the time that they leave your house, if you love your wife, you're showing to them the kind of man that you should be. You're you're protective, but you're also tender. 
you take care of your family, but you also will not let anybody pull any, any crap on you. <laughs> right. So the first thing, love your wife, hold your kids. It's so, it's so good to hold your kids next to your own chest and let them feel you and know that, know that you care for them as a, as a dad. I'm yeah, getting a little, I, I can see that. Listen, it's an emotional topic. I know you got a whole bunch of kids, grandkids, the whole bit. Uh, I love the message. It's been a lot of fun for me. Bob Kilpatrick, you're a first class father all the way. Thank you so much for giving me a few minutes of your time today on first class fatherhood. Alec, thanks so much for the invitation. Alec Lace has interviewed more than 700 dads on his award-winning podcast, first class fatherhood. Dads from all walks of life, including Tom Brady, Deion Sanders, Matthew McConaughey, Steve Harvey, Tony Hawk, Eric Trump, and so many more. Find out why First Class Fatherhood has been number one on the iTunes charts. Who these men are as fathers and how they raise their children is far more important than anything they accomplish in their careers. Alec Lace encourages his high-profile guests to share their fatherhood journeys and offer advice to new and soon-to-be dads. Let every father in your contact list know about First Class Fatherhood. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Every day is Father's Day on First Class Fatherhood.